would like to have Psalm 93 open in front of you and uh, looking at the fact that our God reigns. And it's a very brief psalm, but a very precious one. It has much to teach us concerning who God is, what the world is like, and what lessons we can learn. And so I want to divide up this psalm and to work through it together. And the first thing I want you to see this morning in the opening verses is this, that we have a great picture of God and who he is. The psalm begins with a a very dynamic description and picture of God. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, friends, the Bible is very clear that we are not allowed to make pictures of God. The second commandment really forbids images or idols or paintings or statues of God, and that's why we mustn't make pictures of Christ, because he's a divine person. And this struck me again, you know, we have been in France over the last couple of weeks, and on many of the mountain roads there are statues of the Virgin Mary with the babe in her arms and similarly crucifixes with all manner of images of Christ and all bound up in superstition. We don't need those things. But the Word of God does give us pictures of God in words. And we have one of these great pictures in our text. And the Lord is portrayed here as a great king. It's the language of sovereignty. God is the king of this world, of the universe, and he reigns. He's clothed with majesty. That means that he's clothed with godhood, with greatness, that he is elevated beyond all comprehension. And all the universe is God's kingdom, and he reigns over it. He he reigns over heaven, over earth, even over his enemies, the devils in hell. And he has a scepter in his hand, as it were, a throne on high. His dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is called the King of kings and Lord of lords, showing that all other kings, all other lords, or any other rulers are subject and subordinate to him. Total and absolute lordship and control. He has no rivals. And the Bible is full of these great descriptions of our God, all coming together to reveal his reality and his glory. And part of the emphasis again and again is that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His power is infinite. His control is perfect. You know, when the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 10, we read it together, he emphasized this when he said in verse 30, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You know, it's a a well-known text. Maybe we've used it often, but I wonder, do we really take it seriously enough that God really does know us in that capacity? That not a, a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? I wonder again, do we really believe that? Do we believe that the footsteps of a, a righteous man are ordered by the Lord, Psalm 37? that the hand of God is on all events, both great and small, that the Lord really does reign over everything, that the very breath that we draw even now is from him, the food that we eat is from him, the grass that grows, every single blade is numbered by him, 
the rain and the hail and the snowflakes that come down. He knows exactly every single drop as though it were only one. You know, scientists tell us that no two snowflakes are identical. You have probably heard that many times. The crystal formation is different. How can it be? Because we're speaking of Almighty God with infinite power and skill and wisdom. And there are so many aspects of the created world around us that point to his amazing power and his design. And you say, well, well, why does the Bible give us this picture? Why does the, the Bible spend so long telling us about God, not only here, but of course throughout? Why are we pointed back to him? Well, my dear friends, it's this. The way that we think about life is bound up in how we view God. Our understanding of this world of, of life, of where we can find purpose and joy and peace and blessedness and hope is bound up in our view of God and whether or not we know him and how we can know him. You know, and, and really what the psalmist puts forward here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a, is a different mindset from that of the world. You know, the world has many different views of God different views of what life is all about, but they all leave you, leave us in a mess. You know, only the truth of the word of God can give us the answers that we long for. Let me give you some examples of the different worldviews that, you know, are prevalent today. You know, think about humanism. You know, simply that, that man is the pinnacle, that man is in control of his own affairs, that, that man makes his own way that there's, there's none beyond him, that there's no God, that there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's just now, and we've got to make the best of it. And you know, that might sound very appealing to some. But ultimately, you know, when you begin to think it through, it leaves a terrible emptiness and unhappiness. You know, it's very hard to take that view and not to be a pessimist. You know, the, the view and those around who have sought to, to rid themselves of God and rid society of God has grown, and what's the result? despair. Or, you know, there are those who say, well, I like to believe in a, in a higher power. You give it all manner of labels, whether it's deism or theism or Gnosticism. But the idea, you know, there's something greater, you know, than this world, but it's a, it's a vague higher power, you know, who, who sort of is aloof and, and controls, and it can range from belief in a deity to, to something much darker. But again, when you look in detail at these positions, only leads to despair and to, to hopelessness. And what about fatalism? You know, many believe, well, fate controls the world. You know, over everything that happens, well, you know, it's determined, it's fate. You can't change it. And the things that happen to you, they could be good, they could be awful, but it's inevitable. And again, when you have that view, it's utterly hopeless. And with all these views, it's unsurprising that so many conclude, as 1 Corinthians 15 says of the world, you know, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we're going to die. There's no hope. There's no purpose. But thank God the Bible exposes all of those things and it tells us the truth. It tells us that there is God. There is the God with whom all of us have to do and he reigns, he is in control that life is not meaningless, that life is not without purpose or totally empty or bereft of hope. No, this great God is not aloof. He's not indifferent. He is the God who is near, who has revealed himself and who can be known. And you say, well, how does God reign? 
You know, how does he reign according to the Bible? Well, God reigns in that he is creator. You know, he created this universe out of nothing, created the world in six days. He spoke and it was so. Out of nothing, by his power, he made the heavens and the earth in fullness because he reigns, he's king. From everlasting, quo with majesty, he's creator. He also reigns in that nothing happens outside of his purpose. Do you know, even when sin entered the world, though God is not the author of sin, it was bound up in his eternal purpose. And God reigns in day-by-day events. Nothing happens beyond his control. You know, even the very worst of situations overshadowed by his goodness. We might not see it when we're in those deep valleys, but it's true. And even the unbeliever is touched by the goodness of God and knows something of what we call common grace, how, how God graciously cares for his creation. You know, God reigns. Nothing happens outside his purpose. And God reigns in that he leads men and women to a knowledge of himself. You know, it's the most incredible thing, even though people have rebelled against God, even though they've sinned against him, God has made this way in which rebels can be reconciled with him, you know, can be, can be saved and given to know him, salvation in Jesus Christ alone. You know, God is directing people's lives even when they don't want him. He's bringing them to know him through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You know, it's incredible when you see it. You know, there are those who at one time, they're spiritually dead. And then all of a sudden, the sovereign hand of God begins to deal with them. And they're awakened, their soul is awakened. And they they begin to hear things that, you know, maybe they've heard with the, the natural ear many times before. But suddenly they hear differently. And they begin to hear the truth of God and the gospel. And they're moved and they they cry out to the Lord. And they're being drawn by the irresistible grace of God. And where are they drawn to? To Christ. To the Savior. You know, we're brought to see that we're we're sinners and that we're ruined and that we're lost. And that our relationship with God is broken and that we, we fall short of his glory. And that we, we can't change that no matter how hard we try. And we're, we're shown these things. But then we're shown that the Holy God sent his own son to rescue sinners like us. And his love for, for lost men and women took him to the cross to be lifted up so that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, for he made him speaking of Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, there is that great exchange. We speak of it often. The sinner who comes to Jesus finds their guilt, their sin, their condemnation is laid upon him. And in exchange, they receive forgiveness. They receive his perfection. They receive his righteousness. They receive his everlasting life and peace and deliverance. All given to them, all of grace. We bring nothing but our sin, and in exchange, Christ gives us everything. It's a staggering thing. And God reigns because he leads men and women to himself. Now, I remember a preacher speaking of a friend that he had in America many years ago now. And uh, this friend came from a very difficult background. He really was brought up with practically nothing. But he had succeeded in business and 
He had become a multimillionaire. It was a, a, a proper rags to riches story. But more important than all his wealth was the fact that the Lord had saved this man early in his life. And this converted man, he was fervent for the Lord Jesus. He loved the Lord. And uh, he used the means that God had given him in quite wonderful ways. But he had a brother who hated the things of God. And he hated the gospel. And when this brother found out that his, his own brother had been converted, he said, I don't want to be near you. I want to get as far away from these things as I possibly could. And so this unconverted brother moved to the other side of America, literally about a thousand miles away. And after moving, this unconverted brother who hated the things of God, he was a builder by trade and he was working on a, on a huge building project and he was high up on some scaffolding, working on the roof of some significant building. He was working away with all his tools and then one of his co-workers came up and they greeted each other and the man said, I need to tell you something. And the unconverted brother said, sure, you know, what, what is it? What have you got for me? And the co-worker said, I need to tell you about my saviour, Jesus Christ. And the, the unconverted brother said, oh no. He said, I have moved nearly a thousand miles and I can't escape these Christians. You see the sovereignty of God. This man couldn't get away from the gospel. By God's grace, he was converted. The brothers were reconciled and they were together in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord is sovereign and God has his hand on people and events to draw to himself. And you know, here you are this morning and maybe it's by divine appointment for you. You know, God has brought you here to, to hear his word and, and may it be to someone this morning a, a call to Jesus Christ to finally lay down that rebellion and to trust him for yourself, to finally believe and be saved. You see, God reigns and he is bringing men and women to himself and his gospel purposes cannot be thwarted. And he reigns in that the day approaches when all will be called to account. The Bible calls it the day of judgment. And on that day, those in Christ will be blessed forever, but those outside of Christ will be justly punished and condemned forever. God will see to that. It will take place. He has said it will be so. And the question is, are you ready for that day? Do you understand that he reigns in these things? will come to pass. And so the psalm begins with the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God. But then it moves to a different picture. Look at verse 3, if you will. We're then given a picture of the world. And this second picture in the psalm, it speaks of these great floods and these great waves. Now, some of you have been in Cornwall for a number of days. Uh, sadly, probably haven't had the best of weather and it's been quite stormy. But one of the benefits of the storms is to see the majesty of the waves. And that's the, the picture that we have here, these great waves. And God here compares the world of mankind to a sea whose waves are forever rising and falling. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. You know, you find this imagery throughout the Scriptures. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 57, verses 20 to 21. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. 
The picture is humanity is like the, the restless troubled sea which constantly throws up mire and dirt. You know, the Lord Jesus uses the same picture in Luke 21 and how at the end of the world there will be distress of nations on the earth. And he says, Luke 21, 25, on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Again, Jude 13, the writer speaks about the wicked like this, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. And so it's clear the floods lifting up their waves is humanity, mankind, the world in which we live. You know, the sea is vast. You know, and so is the human race. You know, I wonder if you've ever heard that expression, a, a sea of faces. And so it is, humanity is, is never at rest. There's always trouble. You know, if the Lord permits us to wait tomorrow, you know, I can guarantee that there'll be news of trouble somewhere. You know, you'll turn on whatever it is that you, you listen to, your podcast, your streaming or whatever it is, see the news. And I'll guarantee that there'll be those headlines. There'll never be a time in this life when we turn that on and the headlines are, yeah, everything's fine. You know, everybody's at peace. There's no war, there's no trouble, there's no murder, there's no theft. You know, everyone's happy, it's all good. You know, there's never been such a day since Adam fell and there never will be until the new heavens and new earth. There will always be trouble because of man's rebellion against God and their fallen sinful nature. And so the, the sea of this humanity pouring out its mire and its dirt and its shame, never at rest, sinful, unstable, insecure. And these waves, they always challenge God. You see that in the psalm. They are lifting themselves up. They are lifting their voices, lifting their waves. And although God is king, although he reigns, although he is sovereign over all, the sinful people of this world are forever challenging God, raging against him. Like the sea in a roar, the, the waves throwing up their foam and spray. And it is a vivid picture of mankind's constant challenge to God. You know, maybe you're like that this morning. You know, that you're sat there and maybe you don't want God. You want to be rid of him. There is that lifting up against him within your heart. You don't want him. You say, well, well, how does it challenge God? What does it look like? Well, it links into what we were talking about a few moments ago. These waves, this sea of mankind challenges God by denying him as creator. You know, the world hates to think of God as the one who made them. And so they invent all manner of ways to deny that. They come up with all manner of things and they say, oh, no, 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 we weren't created. Oh, no. We, you know, we just happened. A great cosmic accident. We evolved from this to that. Now, not so much. But even though they, they don't know exactly what happened in their ideas, one thing they're sure of, there was no God. The waves rise up. They don't want him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to be accountable to him. They don't want his rule. They also rubbish his laws. You know, they despise any idea of God's law. You think of the Ten Commandments. Despite their obvious wisdom, people won't have it. You know, think, for example, you shall not commit adultery. People hate it. You know, God says, be faithful in your relationships. And what does the world say? Oh, that's rubbish. You know, the world says, you know, I'm going to be with who I want to be with. I'm going to do what I want. You know, I, I might be committed for a time, but if I want to change, I'll change. 
you know, regardless of consequences. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so I could go on. And even though society is breaking down and agendas are being pushed, which fly in the face of God and his commandments, and is it any wonder that we're in the mess that we're in? And the waves are forever challenging God. The waves lift up their voice against him. And you know, it's not only confined to those who openly reject God, but even those who claim to be the church. Again, in recent days, we saw many big Catholic churches, and you think of the mass. Every time they go through that, what is the priest declaring? You know, here is this, this bit of wafer in my hand, and as I say these words, this is my body, it ceases to be wafer, and it becomes the very flesh of Christ. Same with the mind. And the, the priest is saying that he can turn the wafer into God. Can you fathom the blasphemy? Or closer, those who say, oh, well, you know, God is sovereign, but he'd never make somebody a Christian unless they permit him to do so. But that limitation of God goes against his word and the, the revelation of who he is. Now, God never makes a person a Christian against their will in this sense. God intervenes with tremendous grace and power and he gives us a desire, a willingness to follow him. He enables us, he empowers us, he makes us willing. We're wooed, as it were. We fall in love with Christ through grace given to us out of the riches of his sovereignty and his power and his authority. And then there's this second picture. And even though David wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hundreds of years ago, how relevant they are. The waves of mankind raising themselves against God, smashing against him, nothing's changed. You see how up to date the Bible is. No wonder it is the word of God. These testimonies are very sure. And my friend, these are absolutely reliable, infallible, trustworthy. You can trust the Bible. And you can trust it through and through. Picture of God, picture of the world. Verse 4, what happens? These pictures are brought together. The God who reigns, mankind who rebels like raging waves. But what then? The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Mark, if you will, that word mightier. You see, comparison is being made. A holy God who reigns in a sinful world. What should we see? Well, God reigns, but the world is forever challenging that reign, trying to dethrone him. And again, I want you to be clear this morning. My friends, men would kill God very happily if only they could. I wonder if you really believe that. The Bible tells us without any hesitation that if men could somehow destroy God, they would. They hate him for his sovereignty. The Bible makes it clear. And if you doubt it, ask yourself this. What did people do when he came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ? What did they do? The matchless, most perfect, most gracious, most compassionate person to ever walk this earth. And what did they do to him? You know, did they, they roll out a royal carpet for him? No, as soon as he was born, there were those who sharpened their swords and killed all the baby boys of Bethlehem to try and kill this promised Messiah. And then all those years later, what did they do to this, this innocent one in whom they could find no wrong? They beat him. 
and they spat in his face and they gladly nailed him to a cruel cross with all the, the spite of their wicked hearts and they, they hammered the nails into his hands and his feet and they lifted him up in agony and not content, they then stood and mocked him and said, come down if you're the son of God. And they gloated over him and there are the waves crashing and raising their wicked voices against God. But remember, he is mightier. And remember that death could not hold him. And their wicked plans only serve that greater saving purpose of a sovereign God. But you know, they're doing the same today. The world hates the Savior, hates the gospel, hates those who love and follow him. And you say, well, how? Let me give you some examples. The world wants to get rid of his day. It's a very simple one. The Lord's day. The world wants to make it a day like any other. They want to rid any thought of the one who is to be worshipped. And sadly, you know, that attitude comes amongst those who profess him. Over the years, many regimes have gone for that. They've sought to abolish the day of rest on the seventh day. Communism tried it under Stalin. It was the same in the French Revolution. They wanted to abolish the influence of any religion to elevate the goddess of reason. And so they abolished the Sunday, the Lord's Day, as a day of rest, and they tried to bring in a 10-day week. Didn't work. And so they had to go back. Seven day was reinstated. But the ideology behind both communism, the French Revolution, you know, those ideologies had the same aim to destroy the influence of the Bible and God's decree. That's what the world does. And the world wants to destroy God's design for relationships and the family. We see that. This has long been the design of those in the world. The world with all its might is promoting agendas and relationships which the Bible says are an abomination in his sight. And the acceleration of this in recent years is tragic and we now see the, the full force and justification of things which God's word condemns. And friends, it's heartbreaking to see the relentless flow of depravity that is heralded and particularly the targeting of children in this. There is a full-scale assault on God's design for relationships, for the family. And what are they? They are waves of defiance against his rule, against his plan, against his purpose, against the truth of his word. And you know, the world also wants to undermine the exclusive claims of the gospel. You know, even if they concede that there is a God, the world wants to demean him in such a way and to such an extent that they say, well, whatever you choose, that's good enough for God. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, he'll have to accept whatever way, whatever desire, whatever you give to him, you do what pleases you, and he has to accept it. You know, it has to be that way. And anyone who says that there is only one way, they need to be silenced. But that's not what the Bible says. God has said there is one way, there is one Savior, there is one gospel, and there is one hope, Christ alone and friends we need to be unashamed in our proclamation of that jesus said i am the way i am the truth i am the life no one comes to the father but by me that's the message but the world says no that's intolerant that's exclusive you can't have that but that's the truth 
one way. The waves raging, challenging God. And in our day, those waves seem to be growing in ferocity. You know, the hymn writer says, See round thine ark, the hungry billows curling. See how thy foes, their banners are unfurling. But, the psalmist says, for all the ferocity, for all the powers of this world and all of the rising of those, those waves, the powers of this world will never, never succeed in dethroning God. He's like a lighthouse in the ocean, one of those great structures of solid stone built upon a rock. The waves may dash against him. They might try to dethrone him, but the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. And you know, that is a great comfort to me. And it's a wonderful comfort for those of us who know and love the Lord. And at times, you know, we might feel we're in this terrible storm, but nothing will dethrone him. Nothing will overthrow him. Nothing will take away his sovereignty, not even for a second. They will never ultimately succeed because he is mightier and he holds his people in his hand. And you know, there are times when we look at the raging waves and we can feel afraid. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt afraid and certainly in seeking to stand for the gospel, some of us have. And we felt that fear. And we see all the floods lifting up their voices against him. We see this world raging at him, raging at us if we're faithful to him. What are we to do then? Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know. His voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. You know, we've got to understand that God really is in control. And when we understand that, we will bring our struggles and our challenges to him and we will trust him and know that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. You know, how does the psalmist bring all this together as we close? Look at verse 5. What does the psalmist say are the important things to remember? Well, he says, your testimonies are very sure. You know, the word of God is the sure foundation that we need to cling to the great truths of God, the gospel must be the ever-present guide and direction, like a, a compass needle that always, you know, goes north. Our minds must always return to the truth. We must see this life through the word. The Bible must be central in our lives, in our homes, in our fellowship, in our worship. The inerrant, infallible word our constant study and delight. Why? Because it brings us back to God. It brings us ever back to the one who reigns. It's the faithful word. You know, in a world of lies, it is truth. It shows us God. It shows us salvation in Christ. It shows us ourselves as we are. It shows us this world as it is, the sure testimony of the word of God. That's what we need in this stormy, sin-sick world. Your testimonies, Lord. They are very sure. 
and holiness. Holiness adorns God's house and his people. You know, we need more than ever as the people of God, if that's our position this morning, to be unafraid, to stand squarely on the word and to be distinguished from that which is around us. You know, if we say that we know him, if we say that we love him, if we say that we follow him, we will want to pursue holiness. We are to be holy as he is holy. Without holiness, we cannot please him. We won't see him. And when we honor him, he's pleased to honor us. You know, we are blessed when we walk closely with the Lord. And when we walk closely with him, we love the things that he loves. And we hate the things that he hates. And we're increasingly made like the Lord Jesus. And the holier we are in that communion with him, the more blessed we will be because God will pour joy upon our hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Holiness. And then God's house. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. The worship of God. People will never be happy when they ignore the worship of God. You know, they cannot be. How, how can they be? They're leaving the great matter of life and eternity aside. You know, there's a glorious future to come for those in Christ. A blessed future for the believer. And we are going to be part of that incredible, eternal symphony of praise to this God who reigns. You know, people from all nations, all tribes, all languages, united together in Christ. Revelation 5, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. No, this is the great comfort. The waves may lift up their voices. They may rage against God in every way they can. But he that sits on high is mightier than the noise of all these voices, all these waters. And God's truth will stand. When men will fall, his kingdom will come. Christ will return. The plan of salvation will succeed and all the enemies of God in the end will be put under his feet. The gospel cannot fail. The lamb is on the throne. Be still my soul. Our God reigns and we should rejoice in that today. Amen. Amen.